0: I'd like you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. The Christian finds himself in the uniquest of all situations. He's an ambassador to planet Earth. That's what we're called in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are ambassadors in that this is not our permanent place of residence. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. In fact, Ephesians 2, 6 tells us that we already dwell there. And if you stop long enough to consider it, you've got far more to tie you to heaven than to tie you to this earth. My Father is there. My Savior is there my home is there, my name is there, my life is there, my treasure is there, my heart is there, my inheritance is there, my affections are there, my citizenship is there. I'm just visiting here in this world. And one day the Lord Jesus will come as he promised and he's going to take me there. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm curious to know what it's like And uh, Paul doesn't help us a whole lot. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I was caught up to the third heaven, to paradise, and he comes to tell us about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he said, I heard inexpressible words that a man is not permitted to speak. Now, that doesn't satisfy me. I don't know about you. But when we come to the last couple of chapters in the Bible, we get some insights. Because John is given the privilege of a forward glimpse into eternity, and he writes with great detail in chapter 21 and into chapter 22 about what he saw. And although he mentions a new heaven and a new earth, he really focuses his attention on a new city, the new Jerusalem, the capital of eternity. And we can divide his comments into six parts. Its origin its inhabitants, its beauty, its design, its uniqueness, and its attractions. First of all, we see its origin in verse 2. And we won't read that again because we read it last week, but what it tells us is that it comes down out of heaven from God. Now, why does it come down out of heaven? Why doesn't God just say... Let there be a new Jerusalem, and poof, there it is. Well, the answer seems to be in two parts. Number one, because God seems to want to give the new Jerusalem a grand entrance. It's described in verse 2 as a bride adorned for her husband. And like the bride being the last one to enter the ceremony, here comes the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. After the new heaven and the new earth have already been created, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven as the showcase. But I think there's another reason why uh, God didn't create it at this point in time, and that is because it has already existed prior to the establishment, the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. And as we said last week, I believe this is the place that Jesus went to prepare for us in John chapter 14, and now John sees it coming out of heaven. let me just add a footnote here, and that is, on the basis of its existence prior to the creation of the new heaven and the new earth, some Bible teachers have formulated the theory that it will also come to the earth during the millennium. That's what they call the satellite theory or the chandelier theory, that it comes down and sort of hovers over Jerusalem during the millennium, and that's where we will live during the millennial time and and uh, a whole lot of details about that, I would just caution you about that theory because it really uh, has no verses to substantiate it. There are many who hold that and sort of theorize that, but it doesn't really say that. It's an inference. Uh, in fact, if you notice here in chapter 21, the new Jerusalem is definitely tied to the new heaven and the new earth. He sees the new heaven, he sees the new earth, and, and this seems to be the first time John has seen the new Jerusalem as it comes down. So I'm a little leery of going back and applying this to the millennial time. God can do that if he chooses, but it seems from the way that the chronology is set up here that this is going to be a city which will be associated with a new heaven and the new earth. Then secondly, we see its inhabitants, and we see that in verses 3 through 8. We find there that this is going to be the eternal home of God and his people. God will move his residence from the third heaven to the new earth, to dwell in the new Jerusalem with his people, his people being the saints of all ages. And excluded from this eternal habitation of God will be those mentioned in verse 8, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, those who have never had their sin taken away those who have never surrendered to Christ, who remained in rebellion against God, the unsaved from all ages whose character will forever reflect the controlling presence of sin in their lives. And also excluded will be those things that sin has made rather commonplace in this world as we see in verse 4. Death, mourning, crying, and pain will all be gone and they'll be replaced by all new things, as he says in verse 5. That's exciting. All those things that are associated with sin will be gone, and they will be replaced by all things made new. In verse 6, we're told that our appetite will be quenched from the spring of the water of life. Complete contentedness. Verse 7 tells us we will inherit all things. Complete comfort. And then the end of verse 7 tells us that we will have an individual, personal, father-son relationship with God, complete communion. And so the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem will be God and his people enjoying complete contentedness, complete comfort, and complete communion. And then thirdly, we see the beauty of this city. And that's in verses 9 to 11. Notice verses 9 and 10. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, one of these seven angels who had been involved in the last seven plagues, the seven bowl judgments. One of these angels had taken John into the wilderness back in chapter 17 and verse 1 to see the great harlot Babylon. And now, in contrast to that, one of these angels takes John to see the bride, the new Jerusalem. He's seen the harlot back in chapter 17. That's Babylon. Now he's taken to see the bride, and it is the new Jerusalem. And to get the best possible viewpoint, it says he he takes him up to a great high mountain. Now, for those of you who are skiers, you'll be happy to know there are mountains in the new earth. No sea, but there will be mountains. And he's taken to a high mountain to get this great vantage point of the holy city. You say, well, why is the city referred to as a bride? Why do we go to see, look for the bride and we see a city? Well, let me give you a couple reasons. Number one, because a city takes on the overall character of its citizens. If I say to you, Sodom, what do you think of? You think of sin. Why? Because that's the character of the people who lived in Sodom. You see, the citizens give the city It's character. And when God sees Babylon, what does he see? He sees a harlot because that's the nature of the people who dwell there. And when God sees the new Jerusalem, what does he see? He sees the bride because that's the nature of the people who dwell there. The wife of the lamb, as it tells us in verse 9. And so when he sees this city, it's not so much the, the makeup of the city, but it's also the nature of the people who live in that city that are associated with the bride. And then there's a second reason, I think, that he describes this city as a bride, and that is because nothing communicates the connotation of beauty quite like a bride. And verse 2 sh- says she is adorned as a bride as she comes down. When is a girl most beautiful? On her wedding day. Uh, you know, sometimes I don't recognize the girls that walk up this aisle. Uh, I, I want to take fingerprints, just to be sure. You know, is this, is this the same woman I saw at the rehearsal last night? And she comes down and she's adorned in a gown and, and she's, she's gorgeous, she's beautiful, walking down... The aunt, that's why they pay so much for pictures. I mean, this is it. This is the best they're going to get, you know. And here they come, the bride. What is it that makes this bride, the new Jerusalem, so beautiful? Well, look at verses 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. What is it that makes the New Jerusalem so beautiful? It's because she has the glory of God. You know, we live in a world that largely reflects the glory of man. And it's a dim glory. In fact, God calls it darkness over this world. And God has tried to penetrate that darkness with His glory in the past. In the Old Testament, He came in His Shekinah glory. In the New Testament, He came in the person of Jesus Christ, although His glory was veiled. But in the new creation, in eternity, there's no longer going to be any ego, no longer any sin, no longer any pride, no longer any selfishness, no longer any of man's glory. All the glory is going to belong to God. And men will finally and fully see God for who He is. And this city will radiate the full, brilliant glory of of God, And John attempts to describe that, and the best that he can do is at the end of verse 11, he says, Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal-clear jasper. Here came the city. She possesses the glory of God, and John says she, sh- she shines forth like a crystal-clear jasper stone. Now, the jasper that we know is opaque. You can't see through it. This is a different kind of stone because he says here it's a stone crystal clear and very costly. That's led many to the conclusion that John is describing here, a diamond. And John says the brilliance of the city is like a crystal clear diamond. Imagine that. The whole city sparkling with the infinite glory of God. This is exciting to me. You know, you go back in your Bible to Exodus chapter 33, and Moses was the man who was the closest to God, the friend of God. He walked with God. He, in fact, it says there he saw God. He talked to God face to face. He had a great relationship with God. In Exodus chapter 33, he said to God, God, it's not enough. Show me your glory. And God said to Moses, I can't do that. I'll show you my back as I pass by. I'll let you just see the afterglow of my glory as I go by. That's the best he could do for Moses. And he said, because Moses, no man can see me and live. But you know what? In eternity, we are going to live in the blazing glory of God. That's exciting to me. God will no longer have to say, I'll I'll show you my back, I'll hide you here in the cleft of the rock. You can't really look. The glory is going to shine forth from the new Jerusalem, which will be our habitation with God. And that's the most important aspect of this city because that's its beauty. And then fourthly, we see its its design. And that's in verses 12 to 21. You know, some have questioned whether this is a literal city or whether it's just symbolic. Uh, And just to give you an answer to that, I take this to be a real city. We will have real glorified bodies and we're going to have to live in a place that's just as real as we are. And it goes into great detail in describing this place. I take this just as literally as I take Genesis 1 and 2. Now, granted there may be much secondary symbolism behind the makeup of this city, but the city is real. Just like when you go in the Old Testament and you read about the tabernacle, and you re- read this great detail about the tabernacle and it goes into all the wood and all the kinds of materials and all those details. Well, that was a literal tabernacle, but it also had some great symbolism in all of the makeup of that tabernacle. I think it's the same way here. And we find great details about this city as John describes it in uh, verses 12 to 21. And we're told three things about its design. We're told about the construction, the dimensions, and the materials. First of all, the construction, verses 12 to 14. Notice, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, the city has a wall around it. It's called a great and high wall. It's in the shape of a square as we find out later in verse 16. It has 12 foundation stones to this wall and it has 12 gates in it, three per side and at each gate there's an angel apparently acting as an honor guard on the 12 foundation stones are written the names of the 12 apostles and on those 12 gates are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel you say well why does this city have a wall well, that's a good question. Why would the new Jerusalem need a wall? Well, I'll tell you one thing, this is the only thing I know for sure, and that is that it's not for protection because we'll find out later in verse 25 that the gates are never closed. So the wall isn't to protect us from anybody or anything. All I can figure is that this wall must sort of be a symbol to us. It's not a necessary wall, but it's a symbol to us that this is an exclusive city. That there are only a certain number of people that will be there. And there are others that will be excluded. And sin and sinners will never enter this new Jerusalem. And so there's a wall around it. And then there's a second thing that's interesting here as he describes its, its construction in verses 12 to 14, and that is the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on the gates and the names of the 12 apostles on the foundation stones. That's interesting. This is the New Jerusalem. We've got the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, the church, written there, and we've got the names of the 12 tribes of Israel written there. What's that telling us? Well, it's telling us that Israel and the church are going to be combined in this city. That's exciting. It tells us that what God did through Christ at the cross when He made one new man of Jew and Gentile, He now does in all its fullness in eternity, by taking the saints of all ages and making them one in himself. There will be no middle walls in the New Jerusalem, no uh, neighborhoods where the Jew lives here and, and the church lives here. That won't happen in the New Jerusalem. He breaks down all the middle walls, and what he began to do in the church, he is going to complete in the New Jerusalem. Perfect oneness. An exciting concept. And then we see, secondly, the dimensions in verses 15 to 17. Verse 15 says, And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Now the angel had a measuring rod, or literally, this is a reed. It would be known to the Jews of that day because in measuring something, they would go out and cut. the the stalks that grew commonly around the Jordan River and they would cut them about 9 to 10 feet long and that would be their measuring rod and they would measure things with that. Now, this is not a, a reed because he tells us it's made of gold. This is the measuring rod that the angel had. And first of all, he measures the city in verse 16. And the city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. He measures the city, and it's as wide as it is long as it is high. It's a cube. There's only one other thing that I know of in Scripture that is a cube. And that's if you go back into the Old Testament to the tabernacle you will find that the holy of holy places is a perfect cube. 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. That's kind of an exciting concept because the holy of holy places was the place that represented the very presence of God, where the veil was, where no one could enter in. And now God creates the new Jerusalem and he makes it that same way. A perfect cube really representing the fact that we will live in the holy of holy places with God. That will be our home in the New Jerusalem. But it's a giant cube. If you notice, it's 1,500 miles in each direction. Now, just to help you fathom that, that would mean that if it was set on the United States, it would reach from the Mississippi River to the California coast, and from the border of Canada to the southern tip of Texas. That's a big city it would be 2,250,000 square miles. And that's just the first floor. I don't know what's up above. It's 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, and then it goes straight up 1,500 miles. That's, That's a fifth of the diameter of the earth. It's sticking up out of the earth. Now, this is the new earth, and the new earth might be bigger. I don't know. Nobody said it's going to be the same size. But at any rate, you can imagine this huge city, and it's built as a cube, and I don't know if there's going to be floors. I assume something's up there. Uh, and, uh, you know, you could live on the... I don't know what floor. I, I should have measured. You could be way up there in a condo someday. Uh, now, the wall is rather puny in comparison because notice verse 17. It says, "'And he, and he measured its wall... 72 yards. Now, the wall is 72 yards or 216 feet. Now, that sounds like a big wall until you realize that the wall itself or the city itself is over 36,000 times taller than the wall. So the wall isn't doing a whole lot of service. It, here's the wall and there's the city zooming up another uh, I think it was 36,600-something times bigger than the wall itself. And so, again, we see that the wall is really more of a symbol than anything else. Uh, now, the literal measurement here is 144 cubits. And cubit is, is a Latin word. It, it means elbow. And uh, the way they got a cubit was that they would measure from the elbow to the tip of their finger. And that would be a cubit. Uh, on most people, it's somewhere between 18 and 22 inches. And that was convenient. You could you could measure something without having anything to measure with. You could just use the cubit uh, to measure with. And what's interesting is what it says at the end of verse 17. It says, and he measured its wall 144 cubits according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. That's interesting. He says it's... it's uh, Seventy-two, or 144 cubits, and then he makes that little comment that this is according to human measurements, which happen to also be angelic measurements. Now, I don't think, as some writers said, that that means that angels are the same size as men. I don't think that's true, because earlier in Revelation, we saw an angel standing with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. I think they're bigger than we are. But what it does tell me is that heaven uses the same measurements that we use on earth, and the basis for that measurement is man. That's kind of exciting. When he creates this, this city, who's it made for? It's made for us because it's really measured off according to man. And that's exciting. This is our home where God is going to dwell, but he bases it on its measurements on us. It's the place made just for us. That's what that tells us. And then we see its materials in verses 18 to 21. Uh, and we're told what materials make up various parts of the city. First of all, we're told what materials make up the wall in verse 18. And the material of the wall was jasper. Now jasper, as we saw back in verse 11, was a diamond. And so these 216-foot-tall walls that run for 1,500 miles around the city are made out of diamonds. That's pretty. Then secondly, we see the city itself at the end of verse 18. It says, And the city was pure gold, Like clear glass. The city was made out of pure gold. You say, well, pure gold isn't clear as glass. Well, that's because you haven't seen gold in heaven. The gold in heaven is apparently so pure that it is clear as glass. And then, thirdly, we see the foundation stones in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, the foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The foundation is garnished with these precious stones, and then he names them. Jasper, which is clear as crystal. Sapphire, which is blue. Chalcedony, which is sky blue. Emerald, which is green. Sardonyx, which is red and white. Sardis, which is red. Chrysolite, which is transparent gold beryl, which is sea green, topaz, which is transparent yellow-green, chrysoprase, which is apple-green, jacinth, which is violence, violet, and amethyst, which is purple. Now, if you can imagine this, what you've got here is a diamond city studded around the foundation with all these transparent colors with the glory of God blazing through them like a prism. And then he mentions the gates in verse 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. Each gate to the city in this huge wall, 216 feet tall, each gate was a single pearl. And you say, that must have been some oyster. Uh, I think God can create pearls without creating huge oysters, by the way. Uh, But you know, it's interesting that that the gates to the city are pearl. Because uh, a pearl is created out of trial. And an oyster is there and a little piece of sand or something breaks through the shell and and comes into the shell and penetrates in there and it irritates the oyster and because of that irritation a healing fluid ointment is released and it comes and it coats that piece of sand until eventually it makes it into a pearl you see if there were never any tribulation there would never be any pearl that's kind of exciting that we enter through this city through these huge pearls and paul said in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And here we come through these huge pearls that remind us that they are only the products of trial. And that's exciting because it's trial by which God makes us into the people that he wants us to be. And then fifthly, we see the street. At the end of verse 21, it says, And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. We will walk on gold. No concrete, no asphalt, no gravel. We will walk on that precious stone which today is reserved for bracelets and necklaces and rings. That will be making up the street of the New Jerusalem. Did you notice something about this city? Everything is transparent. Everything he talks about you can see through. Why is that? Because there's no obstruction to block the glory of God. God's going to be there. Everything else is transparent so that God's glory just radiates through everything like a prism and so that everyone at every moment can see God in all His glory. You won't have to walk around the block to see God's glory. Everything is transparent, and the glory of God will shine through. And then fifthly, we see its uniqueness in verses 22 to 27. Six things are unique to this city. Number one, there's no temple. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The temple in the Old Testament was intended to symbolize the presence of God. It won't be necessary in the New Jerusalem because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb will be... It's temple. Worship won't be a spatial event. Worship won't be an occurrence that we go to and come from. Worship will be a way of life because God will be there and the Lamb will be there and they will be the temple. And worship will be a constant, continual process. We will live in the temple of God in His presence and worship Him. Secondly, there will be no sunshine. Notice verse 23. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is a lamb. Now, it doesn't say that the sun won't shine. It simply says the sun won't be needed because God's glory will outshine the sun. We will live in uncreated light. Now, I don't know what that means, but it sounds good, doesn't it? God's not going to create light, create a sun to produce light for us. The sun is going to be the shining presence of Christ. The lamp is going to be the Lamb. And we will live in that uncreated, eternal light of the glory of Christ. And not only will it shine in the city, but verse 24 tells us, and the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Not only will it illumine the city, but it will shine and illumine the whole earth. And men will walk by its light, and men will bring their glory into it. You say, well, what's their glory? Look at verse 26. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. The glory is their worship, and they will come in and bring worship to God. Then a third uniqueness about this city is that we'll have no night, verse 25. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there. Now, darkness is generally the place where evil takes place. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, talks about the deeds of darkness. But in the eternal state, there will be no night. No darkness forever. And I think it's fa- uh, safe to assume that we'll never sleep in the New Jerusalem. There won't, be any, there won't be any darkness. There won't be any nighttime. Not only will we have quantity of time, eternity, we'll have quality of time. There'll be no downtime. You won't have to say, look, I have to get with you later. I'm going to have to go lay down. Never do that. It'll be daytime all the time, no night. Then fourthly, there'll be no locks. Notice verse 25 again, it says, And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. The gates will only be closed at night, and there won't be any night. So the gates will never be closed. They'll be always open for men to come and go and bring their worship to God. And then verse 26, which we read already, says, And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations Into it. It'll always be open and men will continually be bringing their praise before God. And then a fifth uniqueness about this city is that it has no sinners. Verse 27 And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Everyone in this city will be pure. There'll be no sinners. Pure actions, nothing unclean. Pure hearts, no idolatry. Pure mouths, no lying. And I'm going to be there. And I'm not going to be there because I'm better than somebody else. I'm going to be there because my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's an exciting truth. And then we see a sixth uniqueness to this city, and that is down in chapter 22 and verse 3 that there's no curse. Verse 3 says, And there shall no longer be any curse. The curse that fell in the garden upon man because of his sin will be partially lifted during the millennium, and it will be completely removed in the new earth. No curse. I'll even be able to grow things in the new earth. So it will be a unique place. No temple, no sunshine, no night, no locks, no sinners, no curse. And we're going to stop there. Because I don't want to rush through this last part because it's too good. But let me let me say this to you: If you're sitting here listening to the description of this city and saying that that sounds like a great place to be, how do I get there? Let me just answer that question for you, because that's the very question that Thomas Thomas asked in in John chapter fourteen. Jesus said to Thomas and to the other disciples. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again to take you where I am, that where I am there you may be also. And Thomas speaks up and said, Lord, how do we get there? You remember Jesus' answer? Jesus said, I am the way. How do we get to this city that he's describing in the last chapters of the book of Revelation? How do we get there? Jesus says, I am the way. And all you have to do is come to the Lord Jesus. Place your faith in him. And he is the way to this new creation that he talks about. And then he will, as it says in chapter 21 and verse 27, he will write your name in his book, the Lamb's book of life. And that will give you access to the new Jerusalem that he describes and you will have a new citizenship no longer a citizen of this earth but now a citizen of heaven for eternity let's close in prayer Father we thank you for your word today we thank you for this passage of scripture which describes for us in the best way that words can communicate what eternity will be like and Father we know that, that our minds have trouble grasping these things and, and uh we're inadequate to even try to explain them but father we pray that by your spirit you would at least give us a hunger for the concept of of being for eternity in your presence and to live in the blazing light of your glory and lord that's our desire and we pray that our lives on this earth might reflect the fact that that's our desire as we live for you